0: I mean, you can have a seat. If you want to grab your Bible, turn to Matthew chapter 22. Matthew chapter 22. So I officiated a wedding last night. I enjoy doing that when I get the opportunity to. My favorite thing is not the actual wedding ceremony itself, although that's lovely. My favorite thing is to sit down with the couple a few times before they get married. And the last thing that I have them do, the last time that we meet, right before they get married, is to make a top ten list of the characteristics they want in their future spouse or husband. So you you can imagine them sitting at a table and I say, I want you to make the top ten things that you are expecting from the person sitting across the table from you. And then I separate because men like to cheat. And and so the the groom goes over here and the bride goes over here and they make their list. And once they've made their top ten list, I ask them to... Rank the top five, starting with one. This is the number one thing that I want out of you, my husband. This is the number one thing that I want out of you, my wife. And then they come together and and we share those. And I really do this for the man. Because, ladies, you already know this. I'm not telling you anything new. Men are willing, not that intelligent. Right? Amen? Right? So we need to be told what to do a lot of times. And I know, ladies, it would be fantastic if your boyfriend... Husband could discern the feminine manifestations of your heart. I mean, that would be so fantastic. He has probably not done that very well, you know, recently. But if you married a good man, which hopefully you did, he is willing. Not that smart, but definitely willing. And so I just helped the man out by saying, listen, here are the top five things that your lady wants out of you for the rest of your life. Just taking all the guesswork out of it. And I think it is also helpful to women as well. Right? Because it is nice when just somebody just says clearly, this is what I expect of you. This is what I want out of you. It's nice when that happens. And God has done that for us. I mean, you think about the pages of Scripture. It's a long book, page one to the very end. But he has summarized it, what it is he is expecting out of you. And that's how what we get in Matthew chapter 22, verse 34. This is what it says. But when the Pharisees heard that he, that's Jesus, had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. And this is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Now in Matthew chapter 22, Jesus is asked three questions. This is his third and final question. He actually finishes the chapter by asking a question himself. The question that came before this was asked by a group called the Sadducees. Now the Sadducees were, in, what in our terms, would be a political party if you mixed religion into that political party. They were the ruling party. They ruled and led the nation. Uh, they were, this party was filled with uh, old families and old money and old power. The Pharisees, who asked the question that we're concerning ourselves with today, they are more of the common people. They are local leaders. The Sadducees are more national leaders. They are local leaders. They are the rulers of the synagogues. They were a group of people who were a political party but also a religious party. They are obsessed with following God's law down to the nearest detail. And one of them... A lawyer, a teacher in the law, an expert in the law, comes and asks Jesus a question. Now it says that he's come to ask Jesus a question to test him. Meaning he wants to see if Jesus is really uh, a teacher that is able to carry this great reputation that Jesus has built. Because Jesus didn't come from the same rabbinical schools as the Pharisees. He didn't come from the same families. He didn't pick the same career path coming out of middle school. But yet people are following Jesus, calling him rabbi, calling him a teacher. And so this lawyer comes to see, is Jesus really a teacher? And is he going to answer this question the way that we would answer the question? Now, it is a real question. It's not a hypothetical question. It is a real question that this lawyer wants to know What is the greatest commandment? Now, in the Old Testament law, there were 613 different commands. Some of those commands were to uh, telling us, you know, don't do this. And some of the commands were saying, do this. 613 of those commands. And then groups like the Pharisees would add fence laws. Say that with me. Fence laws. A fence law is a law that you put in place to keep you from breaking the law. So it would be like, theoretically, hypothetically, you are supposed to obey the speed limit. Now, I know that those are just obviously suggestions, but let's just pretend that we actually obeyed authority and you were committed to not breaking the speed limit although it's very difficult and you know you can be tempted sometimes in the flow of traffic so in order to not break the speed limit law you put an instrument on your vehicle that prevented your car from going above the speed limit and it was able to discern what the speed limit was in whatever particular road or way that you were on and then so you have a fence now you don't want to break the law, so you put an offense in to keep you from breaking the law. But then imagine encouraging all of your friends. Hey, you know, there's the law, but there's a new law. The new law is to put this on your car so that you don't break the law. So now, not only do they have the 613 things that God has actually asked them to do, they've added hundreds of things that they are asking themselves to do so that they don't do the things that God has not asked them to. And so Jesus is not the first person to be asked this question, what is the greatest command? Meaning, what is the priority command? They really wanted to know. They wanted to be rescued from their own self-righteousness. They knew that the system that they had created with the law and all of its commands and then their fence laws was more than they could handle. And so they just wanted it summarized for them. Look what it says in verse Thirty-seven. This is how Jesus answers it. And he said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. And this is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So Jesus quotes here in the first part, Deuteronomy chapter 6. It was called the Shema. Say that with me. Shema. See, don't you feel very Jewish now? The Shema was a prayer that every good Jewish person prayed every single morning. You should love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. It's part of the Shema. So these Pharisees woke up, said this prayer. Jesus woke up, said this prayer. This was the first prayer that... You taught your children. So I don't know if you've taught your children to pray yet. You know, maybe you lean in with them with the Lord's Prayer or something. They taught their children the Shema. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind. Then Jesus also adds Leviticus chapter 19 verse 18. Love your neighbor as yourself. Now, this is not original to him. Other teachers have done this, Combine these two things. So this was common. So essentially what Jesus is doing is they say, what's the greatest commandment? He is handing them back their own prayer. So he hands them back their morning prayer, but in a way to say, you are praying this, are you obeying it? You are reciting this, are you practicing it? So he gives them an answer that's so traditional that no one can refute it. And yet it's so deep that there's plenty of room for conviction and change in it. There are two things I want us to walk away with this morning. We don't usually do points here, um, but I felt like it was appropriate. But we're only going to do two because that's kind of my speed. And so two points this morning. You're going to see them up there. Number one, the priority is the relationship. What is the priority? What is the greatest commandment? The priority, number one, is the relationship. That's what Jesus says. Love the Lord with all your heart. Now, the heart in the Scripture is a representation of all of you. It's all of your passion, all of your will. Love the Lord your God with all your heart. And then he says soul. We're going to do that next week. And mind. We're going to do that two weeks from now. But we start with heart today. Your heart is a representation of, of all that you are. Now I know some of us when we started talking about love. Like that's kind of the theme of today. About half of us checked out. Because that's not really your gear. You are a doer. You're, you're not a feeler. And, and especially to love God that feels weird. Because you can't see him. And it's hard to wrap your mind around him. How do I love you know somebody I can't see. And, and, and you know what, what does that look like. But what you have to understand is this is the priority. Like You don't get to opt out of this. This is the priority. This is how Jesus summarized everything. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your passion, with all of your will. And you were made for this. You're like, well, that's not really my gear. Well, that's your fault because it is your gear. God made you to love Him. Ecclesiastes tells us that He put eternity into your heart, which means there is a part of you that longs for something that you cannot find on planet earth, you long for a relationship that lives and is established by higher standards than what you can find in earthly relationships, there is a part of you that was made to love God. What has happened to most of us is we've just quenched that longing along the way. Or we try to satisfy it with something else. But nobody gets to opt out of this. There's no man in here. God bless you. There's no man in here who is too macho to follow through with this. There is no man in here who is too manly to love God. And if you want to opt out of this, the scripture is so clear. You're disobeying the priority. Not even command 613 or some random one like Command 442. But number one, all of the law and prophets depend on these. You were made for this. I I don't know if it's crossed your mind yet. Why would God command us to love him? It doesn't seem weird. Like, I understand, like, commanding us to obey him. Like, that makes total sense. Like, I commanded my children to get dressed this morning over and over and over and over and over again. So you can tell the kind of authority that my command has in my home. Like I get commanding someone to obey. That seems like a thing that you would command. I I understand commanding us to worship. That makes sense. God is great. He's huge. He created everything. He's powerful. I can understand him saying like, you don't get me. And so I'm commanding you to worship me. But it seems odd to command love You know, why would God do that? I know there are probably like more philosophical and sophisticated answers to this. So if you are a philosophical and sophisticated person, like number one, you're going to hate this church. Number two, um, (laughs) but I think when you take all that philosophy and sophistication and you boil it down, I think the reason that God commands us to love him is that he loves us. On Friday, I went with my daughter Annabeth to uh, preschool for Donuts with Dad. She's four. Now, donuts with Dad, if you're not in that stage of life, let me just give you the rundown. You go to drop your daughter off at preschool, but instead of dropping them off and running away, like I do most days, uh, uh, you stay, and you sit down in the little chair, you know, like the tiny like, little chair. And so I'm rocking it with my knees up, you know, in my face, and, and at a little chair. And they come, and they bring you donuts, Uh, So they set some donut holes in front of Annabeth on a little paper plate, and then they hand me a donut. And I look up, and I'm like, a donut? (laughs) Singular donuts? Like, who are you? You know, I need more than one, so I stole a few off of her plate. (laughs) So you eat your donuts, and then you're supposed to color, draw little pictures, you know, together, me and Annabeth on one sheet of paper drawing. and, And then there's a little presentation afterwards. And so, Now, Jackson is our seven-year-old. I talk a lot about Jackson. Jackson is very sweet. He's a very sweet-natured kid. So, like, when I come to eat lunch with him at school, like, he's super happy. Like, he's he's happy, and he's dancing, and he's very... Uh, glad to come and sit next to me and and we eat together and he wants to introduce me to all his friends and and his teachers and, and tell me about what he's doing and and uh, you know if we walk down the hall together like he will reach out and grab my hand now I'm a cool dad and I know that when you're in the second grade like you, you know you may not be wanting to hold hands with people and so I'm just playing it cool but Jackson will reach over and grab my hands very sweet so there's Jackson and then there's Annabeth Annabeth's a little bit different. I told Amanda the other day that I feel like our children got the best of her and they got the worst of me because uh, I realized what it was like to be married to me as I'm doing donuts with dad, uh, with Amanda. So I came home and apologized to Amanda. Right? So um, we're, we sit down and we're supposed to color on the same page, draw a picture of daddy and daughter. I mean, that sounds so romantic and sweet. And I pick up a crayon just, and I start you know, doing it. And she takes the paper and she kind of starts doing this thing. You know. No, like, this is my time, you know. I'm like, okay. And then, you know, um, I'm like, well, who's this person? You know, who's this person? And she just looks at me like, why are you here? You know, why, why are you here? Then we go to where the presentation is. The teacher says, the teacher says, grab the hand of your dad. So I reach out for her, and she walks to the other side of the hallway to walk next to me. I mean, I was devastated, right? devastated that my beautiful, lovely, amazing daughter would treat me like this. Now, I was only half devastated because she's four. I'm not taking it super personal, but like, you know, a little bit personal. But I wasn't frustrated or, or you know, upset or bothered because I was embarrassed, you know. I mean, who cares what all those other dads and their loving children thought about, you know, my daughter and I. You know, I wasn't embarrassed. I, I, it wasn't because I was mad or But I was, you know, like, you turkey. Because (laughs) I love her. And she makes me happy. And as her dad, because I love her, I want her to love me. Because she makes me happy, I want to make her happy. Now, I'm going to love her no matter how she treats me back, because that's the role of a father. But I think if you... Take all of our sophisticated answers and funnel them down to why would God command you to love him? There's no sinister reason there. There's no trick there. He wants you to love him, not because he's needy. He wants you to love him because he loves you. Because he's your father. And fathers want to be loved by their children. The scripture proves this. Turn to 1 John chapter 4. First John chapter 4, right there in the back. It says this in verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. So right here we're getting, if you're going to be in a relationship with God, it's going to be a love relationship. Love is going to be the foundational element. Why? Because love Is foundational to him. God is love. It says in verse 10, And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. And then skip down to verse 19. We love because he first loved us. So there's an order here. He loves us. We love him. He loves us. We love our neighbor. So any love that we are returning to God... Today, any love that we are offering God today is love that we have first received from him. I want you to turn a few pages to the right. Revelation chapter 2. Revelation is a, a letter to seven churches. One of those churches is the church in Ephesus. And here in the beginning of Revelation, each church gets a little note from Jesus himself. This is what it says in Revelation chapter 2, verse 1. To the angel of the church in Ephesus, that means to the church in Ephesus, write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. The seven golden lampstands are the seven churches. We learned that in Revelation chapter 1. This is from Jesus who walks among the churches. Verse 2. I know your works. Your toil and your patient endurance. Now, works is kind of a summary of all the effort that a Christian produces. I know your works and your toil, so not only is there effort, there's maximum exertion of that effort here from the Ephesians. And your patient endurance. Life is not easy. They're in that moment where they're like, God never fails, love never fails. And some of them are like, I don't know. Some persecution is happening from the outside. Some strife is happening from the inside of this church but they're enduring. And how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. So not only are they exerting maximum effort in being a Christian and doing what's right, they're also very protective of what comes in and out of the church. They protect their doctrine. And if anybody comes into the church that is evil and is only pretending to be good, they remove them from the church. They don't associate with those people. Verse 3, I know you are enduring per- patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. So they're, they're not even doing it for the wrong reason. They're doing it for the right reason, for Jesus' name. Verse 4, but I have this against you that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent. And do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. One scholar says what has happened to the Ephesians is they have settled into cold orthodoxy. I mean, they're doing everything right. You and I looked at their life, we would, well, we would feel bad about ours. They're doing everything right, and yet Jesus says their love has grown cold. They've lost the love, the passion, the will that they had in their early days as believers. Now, I want you to take those two parts of this section. The first part, which is maximum effort, endurance, toil, work not associating with people who are evil. You you, you take that first part, and then you take the second part, which is love. And Jesus is so serious about this love that he says, if you don't figure it out, I'm coming to extinguish you. Meaning, I'm coming to shut down your church if you don't figure this out. So if any of us are thinking that we can opt out of love, we can't. Because if we as a church opt out of love... We're done. Jesus Himself will shut us down. So, when you take those two parts, there's the work part, the effort part, the we hate evil part, and the love part. Which part do you think most people that you work with and live with would use to describe what a Christian is? Work, effort, toil. Exclusivity, or love? I mean, what would the people that you work with say about you? Well, I know they endure church every week. You know, I I know that they, uh, well, they do a lot of things that I don't do. I know that they're like real active in volunteering. I know they give part of their income away. Love. I mean. I think he contributed to my birthday pot last year. I think his family sent me a Christmas card with a picture of their family. it. Which one describes you? Which one looks the most like your Christianity? Effort, toil, work, endurance, or love? The second thing I want you to to write down this morning. The priority is love as the foundation for righteousness. The priority is love as the foundation for righteousness. See, the Ephesians have fallen into the same assumption as us. We believe that God's chief desire for us is to be good. I mean, people have been telling you all your life be good. Be good. No one's better at it than, than the church. Be good. And they have been good. I mean, they're really good at being good, these Ephesians. I want you to do something real real quick. Take a little detour. Turn back to 1 John chapter 4. I just want you to look at the first verse that we read earlier. Verse 7. This is the first word. It says, Beloved. That's a sweet word, right? You hear that word at weddings, you hear that word at funerals, and you see that word on tattoos. That's about the kind of the three primary uses of beloved. More power to you. More power to you. Beloved. It's better than a lot of words you could get permanently inked on your body. But it's a compound word. We're doing a little English right here. Compound word made of two words. What are they? Be loved. Be loved. That's who the scripture says you are. You are beloved. And if you are beloved, then be loved. That is the message of the scripture. I mean, what are the most famous verses in the Bible? For God so loved the world. Romans chapter 5, verse 8. But God demonstrated his great what? Majesty, power, power. Glory! No, God demonstrated his great love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Be loved. But most of us have only ever lived under the weight of be good. And if you are addicted to be good, you don't understand be loved. These Pharisees back in Matthew chapter 22, turn back there, Matthew chapter 22, they didn't understand be loved. They under, only understand, understood be good. And they were trapped under the, the weight of be good. Don't break the law. Make laws to prevent you from breaking the laws. They were trapped under that. Do you ever wonder why they kept doing it? The same reason you and I keep on being faithful even though there's nothing inside of us that wants to be faithful. Some of you are here. You come to church every week and just honestly, you hate it. You hate it. You don't like any part of it. But you keep coming back. Why? Because it's your duty. It's your obligation. You want to go to heaven when you die. So you believed in Jesus. What does Jesus tell you to do? Well, you think he tells you to come to church. And so here you are. Duty. the Pharisees, man, they understood duty. They didn't understand be loved. They understood be good. They understood obligation. They understood duty. And if you're squirming right now because you think maybe it's dangerous to tell people, just put aside, be good and move to the front, be loved. Like you are awesome, but you are a Pharisee. And listen, there's no judgment in that because I'm the lead Pharisee. I mean, pastor, you know, I mean, that's like, you gotta be a Pharisee if you're gonna be a pastor. I remember when I was in college, it was especially pharisaical back in those days. Amanda and I, we dated long distance, and so we're talking on the phone one Saturday night, in the midst of, I love you, I love you more, I love you, you're so sweet, in the midst of all that, which we still do, of course. She says, Yeah, I'm just really tired. how long a long week. I think I'm going to sleep in tomorrow. No, tomorrow is Sunday. I think I'm going to sleep in tomorrow and go to the Sunday night service. Now, at her church in her town, the Sunday night service was the exact same thing as the Sunday morning service, but woe to those who sleep in on Sunday morning. I'm like, what do you mean you're going to sleep in? She's like, yeah, it's the same exact service. Same sermon, same song. It's like the same exact thing. I'm like, but you can't sleep in on Sunday morning. And this is not going to surprise you, but we got in a humongous fight. You ever just want to go back in time and punch yourself in the face? It's like about half of my story. So listen... When I say that you are a Pharisee, don't take it personal, because I am too. Bound by my duty, bound by my obligation, and not by my love. Listen, just ask yourself a question. This is the best way to know if you've understood and taken in be loved or you're just still living under the banner of be good. If you took away everything that you do in Jesus' name out of obligation, what would be left? That's all that Jesus stuff that you do. The Bible reading, the prayer, the godliness, the right. If you just took everything, all of that that you do purely out of obligation, what would be left of your Christianity? Listen, I'm telling you right now, in a moment of honesty, if you take out all that I do based on duty and obligation, half of what I call faith is gone right off the top. And listen, Jesus, not some random apostle, not some random teacher. Jesus is setting us free today if you feel like you cannot endure one more Sunday under the weight and the burden of be good, Merry Christmas. It's early coming to you. You don't have to live under the banner of be good. You get to live under the banner of be loved. And when you are loved, then you will love, which is the priority commandment. See, the Pharisees, they didn't understand verse 40. It says, on these two commandments, love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and love your neighbor of yourself. On these two commandments depend all of the law on the prophets. It literally means all of the commands. Those 613 commands, they all hang from those two commands. Love God and love people. This command to love God is the foundation for all of your righteous actions. For all of that stuff that you do. So just ask yourself. Maybe you threw away your TV because it is Satan's tube. (laughs) Fantastic. Man, praise God for you. I didn't, but praise God for you. Did you do that because you loved God or because it made you feel righteous? I wake up at 4.30 in the morning. This is not me speaking, obviously. I wake up at 4.30 in the morning to pray, to read the Bible. It's amazing. It's so good. It's so scriptural. Do you do that because you love God or it makes you feel righteous? I go out and serve the homeless. Man, I'm so glad to put my arm around those people and just love them. They need so much help. That's great, man. Do you do that because you love God or it makes you feel righteous? Because here's, the, here's the, the terrifying thing for me personally as lead Pharisee. Is the poor Ephesians, man, they were knocking it out of the park. I know your works, I know your toil, I know your perseverance, I know your protection of the church and righteousness. And yet because Jesus is the one who walks among the churches, their external righteousness did not fool him. Oh, how horrible for me. How horrible for me. I have so much righteous action that I do in Jesus' name that he rejects because it was not built on any kind of foundation of love. It was built on a foundation of be good and do good. And he is not impressed nor is he fooled by any kind of righteous External demeanor that I can hold together. See, and the thing is, is that when you start with be loved and then you take that love and you return it to God, love the Lord your God with all your heart, then you end up honoring that love. You don't have to be afraid that by setting people free to be loved and to love God that they're going to somehow destroy their lives. What I have found is the people who love God the most live life the cleanest. The people who love God the most live life the purest, not for purity and cleanliness sake, but for love's sake. So the Pharisees among us today who would feel a little nervous that we're setting people a little too free, you can't set people free enough into God's love. We'll close today with Matthew chapter 9. You don't have to turn there, but Matthew chapter 9 tells this amazing story of how Jesus, he comes into this town. You can imagine a first century town, dirt road, running right through the middle of town, a lot of booths and kind of market along that main road. There's a tax collecting booth there because that was a part of first century culture in Israel. In the booth, the tax collector is there collecting taxes and Jesus walks over to him and We don't get a big background story, but it just appears that Jesus walks over to this tax collector as he's collecting taxes and says, I want you to follow me. This would be like Jesus walking into a bedroom where two people are committing adultery and saying to the adulterers, follow me. This would be like someone robbing a bank and Jesus walking into the bank while the robbery is happening and saying to the robber, I want you to follow me. Jesus says to the tax collector, who was hated, who was evil, wicked, notorious, follow me. And what's interesting is we're told his name is Matthew, the tax collector. And we read that story in the gospel of Matthew. What kind of emotions do you think were stirred up in this man as he was writing down the stories of Jesus and he got to his story? Listen, when was the last time that you, in the midst of all these other stories that you hear at church and hearing about other people's lives. When was the last time you just remembered your own story? And you may not have been in a tax collecting booth, but you were in some room that you shouldn't have been, and you were saying something that you shouldn't have said, and you were with somebody that you shouldn't have been with, and you were doing something that you shouldn't have done. And in the midst of that moment, the scripture says, God called you in Jesus away from that. He said, follow me. When was the last time you remembered your story? Because I'm thinking that as Matthew writing down the stories of Jesus, finally got to his story. There were a lot of stains on the the scrolls. There were a lot of stains on the parchment from his tears. So when he got to Matthew chapter 22 in his gospel, he didn't have any problem obeying, love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind. Because he remembered that one time in a booth, he got called out. Scene quickly changes. Now there's a party happening with other tax collectors, uh, other notorious wicked men and sinners. These were people who were just, they didn't care about anything. They just wanted to do what they wanted to do. Tax collectors and sinners, they were really the only people who could hang out with each other. And they're in the midst of a party. And Jesus is there in the house with them. And I am—and the disciples. And I imagine Jesus is like the cool guy at the party. Like he knows how to handle himself, right? Like he's in there, he's having conversations, he's amidst everybody. But the disciples, they're kind of the nerdy eighth grade boys at the eighth grade dance. You know, they're just kind of all standing over at their side with their soda. You know, everybody else got the wine and they got their little, you know, sparkling water and so they're over there kind of being geeky and nerdy not really knowing about what to how to engage and here come the pharisees the righteousness police woo, 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 woo. you know these people gosh they're the worst and here they come and here they come and they ask the disciples real simple question why does your teacher not our teacher why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners. I mean, how can he be with those people? Ephesians probably would have said the same thing to him in Revelation chapter 2. How can you how can he be with these people? Jesus overhears it and he turns to the Pharisees and he says, I want you to tell me what this means. And then he quotes the prophet Hosea: I desire mercy and not sacrifice. And the story's over. I don't know what you thought you came to offer today. I'm guessing that what most of us thought was that we were going to add on some additional laws to the long list of laws you were already aware of. And you were going to make a sacrifice to obey because you are obligated to obey. But we're free today, set free by the Son of God Himself. The message today is not be good. It's be loved. And as you are loved, then love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind. And love your neighbor as yourself. Let's build our righteousness on that foundation. Let's pray together. Jesus, thank you for setting us free. And thank you for setting us free. just in a moment of of honesty with everyone's heads bowed and eyes are still closed, if you just feel weary today because you've lived under the banner of be good, would you just raise your hand? Nobody's looking around. I want to pray for you. Just living under the banner of be good. Yeah, just hands all over the place. Father, I thank you for those folks and I pray that you would meet them and to be good with love. I pray that they would know today and hear your voice say that they are loved for free. They are unconditionally accepted. They are a son. They are a daughter. And they are treated accordingly. We are not treating according to, according, uh, according to our acts. We're treated according to the act of Jesus. And we want to stand in that today. Thank you, Father. Thank you for setting us free. In Jesus' name, amen.